0: I want to share um, what, for the fourth time, what is the last message in this series. I keep saying it's the last one, and I keep going on. Um, so I think this is the last one, but we'll see where it goes from here. But uh, we're talking about legacy. And the theme is is living a life that lasts. And uh, I, as I defined legacy each week, I just want to keep reminding you, legacy is a body of people sent on a mission. A body of people sent on a mission I've said it over and over again in the last month a legacy is not the same as a will we will our stuff to our loved ones but a legacy is about the way that we live our lives we want to impact our children we want to become a living example of the Christian life to the generations that follow us we when we have lived in such a way that we have emulated our lives to some degree, where they have emulated our lives, our children, and the following generation, then we have a legacy. Legacy is people that we leave behind us, affected by the way we lived the Christian life. Father, we just welcome you today to just open our eyes to your word once again, that you would just impact us in this church to really take legacy seriously. And just teach us as our hearts are open to you here today. In Jesus' name, amen. After we defined legacy for you, we began sharing some of the things that are required in order to leave a godly legacy. What is necessary for legacy? What kind of environment is conducive for a strong legacy? And so far I have suggested three of them. The first one was sound doctrine. We need to get away from the escapist mentality and really focus on the long term with the gospel. We talked about the importance of good parenting. That is at the very heart and foundation of legacy. And then we talked last about the synergy of generations. How God has designed it so that several generations live on the earth at the same time so that we can interact and minister one to another. And so that synergy is incredibly important. Today we're going to cover our final two requirements for a healthy legacy, and they are building memorials and establishing accurate standards. Let's start with memorials. The book of Joshua, and in chapter 4, contains... A major story concerning legacy and the passing of the baton from one generation to another. Moses is dead. Joshua has been charged with the task of leading Israel across the Jordan River into their inheritance, which we call the Promised Land. I want to read from Joshua 4, the first nine verses. You can follow along. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan... The Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, Each one of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. Now notice this, in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and the stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. And Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood and there they are to this day. Now that would have been quite a memorable day in the history of Israel. It's not every day that a group of priests stands in the middle of a flooded river with the ark and they watch the waters stop behind them as though there was some invisible dam there. It's not a normal thing to cross a river during flood season on dry ground. This was a A miraculous day for Israel, and it was an incredible day of transition for them. They had left Egypt behind. Now their their wilderness journey of 40 years was finally over, and they were about to inherit the promised land that God had given them. Each of the 12 tribes had a representative pick up a large stone from the riverbed where the priests had stood and where they crossed, and they carried them to their camp on the banks of the Jordan and put them down. And then Joshua arranged them into some sort of pile that became a memorial for generations to come. But notice that this was not Joshua's idea. This is what God commanded them to do. Why? Because God knows our propensity to forget. And we tend to be so busy with the demands and challenges of of life today, that we forget the memorial stones that God has established in our lives. Pastor Johnny shared a testimony of of their children, our grandchildren. That is a memorial stone. That is something they'll always go back to for the rest of their lives, to celebrate the faithfulness of God. God knows that sometimes the best way to face the future is to review the past. The best way to face the future is to review the past. Now, I want to be very careful here, because God also knows there are a lot of Christians who spend way too much time rehearsing the past. You know what I'm talking about? There are some things that we would do well to forget. I'm talking about our failures. It does not do us any good to keep rehearsing our failures from the past and reliving the pain of those times. Get healed of those memories and move on. The Apostle Paul obviously wrestled with that same thing in Philippians 3, these familiar verses, verses 13 and 14. He says, Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. In other words, I have not really arrived yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead I pressed toward the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now Paul had done some things that he likely regretted when he was still named Saul of Tarsus. He had persecuted the church. He considered the church his enemy and the enemy of God. Imagine being Paul and having the guilt of Stephen's death on your conscience. He arranged that death. He stood and held the garments of the men while they stoned Stephen to death. But Paul learned that living in regret of the past would get him nowhere. He had to forget his past failures. And that word that is used here for forget implies neglect. Because how many of you really realize you don't forget your past? The memories are still there. But the word that is used here actually implies neglect. Neglect those memories. Don't camp on them. Don't spend time in them. We are not able to erase the memories of our failures, but we should neglect to dwell on them. And some of us need to practice some really good, healthy neglect once in a while when it comes to our past. Stop rehearsing your failures. Stop. It does no good. We sometimes use the terminology that God forgets our sins. Um, I'm not sure God forgets our sins. Because if there's something that God didn't know, He wouldn't be omniscient, right? And I think it's the same with the Lord. It's not like He can't remember our sins, but God does neglect our past. He does turn His eyes from our past. He doesn't keep bringing it up. Jeremiah said this in chapter 31 and verse 34, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Here the Hebrew word is the same. It is to dwell on, to make mention of. God says, I am not going to dwell on your sin. He doesn't forget them, but he doesn't dwell on them, and he never makes mention of them. When you feel guilt for a sin that you committed in the past, that is that you put under the blood of Jesus, it is not God speaking to you. Only the enemy reminds us of our past failures. God does not dwell on them, and he does not make mention of them to us. And that should be our, our posture regarding our failures. While we have the ability to bring up memories, we should not rehearse those memories over and over again. There are things that we ought to, to forget in the sense of giving them no attention. There are some things that are unhealthy to remember. But at the same time, there are memories that we should visit regularly. Memories of the times when God has been faithful to us. And so basically, our problem is that we are remembering things that we should forget, and we're forgetting things that we should remember. That's really our problem. God charged Joshua and the nation of Israel with the responsibility of actually creating a means of remembrance. In this case, it was just a pile of rocks. And it seems strange to leave a pile of rocks along a, a river bank. You might think, that's kind of curious. Well, that's exactly what it is. Because God knew that their children would be curious. And one day as they were traveling along the river, they would say, hey dad, what's that pile of rocks there? And dad would recall the story of the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River on dry ground. We need to be creative in preserving memories for the younger generation. We need to establish memorials. If you have to put a pile of rocks in your backyard, fine. Whatever it takes, establish memorials in your life. Find ways to remind yourself and your children of God's faithfulness. You know, a few weeks ago, I I spoke of the importance of good parenting and and the part that it plays in leaving a legacy. I referred you to a well-known passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and there God told them to teach the law diligently to their children all day long. You remember that? When you lie down, when you rise up, when you walk in the way. Day and night, teach your children the law. And then God told them the importance of leaving a legacy. A few verses later, this is what he said, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build. Now this is grace. God said, I'm giving you cities that you didn't even have to build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide. Wells that you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God knows that when things are going well, we tend to forget. We tend to forget. When your bills are paid, and your belly is full, and your relationships are healthy, you tend to forget God. And what I'm saying is, we need to be more intentional about remembering. We need to remember to remember. So here on the banks of the Jordan River, God gives them a memorial. A memorial is a memory. When we visit a memory again, we remember remember. We visit it again. We re-memory. We re-a-memory. We redo that thing. We live it over and over again. And God built remembering through Israel's feasts and practices. All through the Bible, the feasts of Israel were constant reminders to the Israelites of the things God had done for them. Think of the Passover meal. It was a reminder of the affliction of Egypt and how God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. All of the feasts were about creating memorials for Israel, and they celebrated them year after year, and as they celebrated them, they remembered. God built stories of memories in the Bible. The Bible is a fascinating book. You really, you really ought to read it more often, <laughs> and more of it. The Bible is comprised of various types of literature. There are churches that would throw me out if I referred to the Bible as literature, but it is. There are various literary styles in the Bible. There is poetry. There are proverbs. There is law. There is prophecy. There are letters or epistles. There is even apocalyptic literature that speaks in strange symbolic terms. And But have you really noticed how much of the Bible is just story? I mean, really, the bulk of the Bible is story. I was just leafing through the Bible the other day, and and think of it. Genesis is nothing but story from creation all the way through the patriarchs. Exodus, story of how God brought them out of Egypt. Leviticus, well, there's a bunch of laws in there, but the laws are told in the context of story. Numbers, story, Deuteronomy, story, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, stories. They're just stories all through the Scripture. We could go through all the the books of the Bible and show you stories. And the stories of the Bible, the amazing thing is they are just as relevant today as as they were the day they were written. Why is that? Well, while cultures change, people really don't. And when we read the stories of the Bible in their context, the context in which they are written, we can find amazing application to our lives in the 21st century. So I want to encourage you to engage this thing called memory in a positive way. Stop rehearsing all of your failures and focus on your own stories. And if you don't have enough stories yet, go to God's Word and read the stories of how God came through for them until God comes through for you. You see, the Bible says when we, when we study the Scripture, we get the Word in us, faith arises in our hearts. We begin to say, God is able to do this, and if God did this for them, He'll do it for me. So if you don't have your own stories, read the Bible, rehearse the stories until you have your own stories. Your own memorial stones. Psalm 145 says this, I exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Catch this. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell Of your mighty acts. That is your responsibility. One generation commends God's works to another and speaks of his mighty acts. When we don't visit the good memories of the past, we don't create good memories for the future. Build memorials in your life. Rehearse the stories. Jot them down in a book if you have to. Whatever you need to do, remember them. For some of you, it might be a journal. For some of you, it might be some physical demonstration. But build memorials and share them with your children. The second thing that I want to talk about that is required for leaving a good legacy are accurate standards. Now, this point is closely related to building memorials. Memorials are the stories of Scripture, the experience of our lives. The standards that I'm talking about are the principles of scripture. I probably mentioned in the past that I am fascinated with this term the law and the prophets. It's used over and over again, the law and the prophets in the scripture. And they are differentiated in scripture. Let me give you a couple examples of how Jesus used them. Matthew 5:17, think that I think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, all things you would that men would do to you, you do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew eleven thirteen. For all the prophets and, and the law prophesied until John. Law and prophets, again, by Jesus. Matthew 22 and 40, when he's talking about loving God and your neighbor, he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so I've come to think of these two and I include them together in a sermon because they work in tandem. We've got to have the memorials, the story, but we've got to have the law that is behind it which gives us the standards. The prophets provide the stories, but God also provides in His Word the principles, the law, and both of them are necessary. Isaiah expressed the same thing, really in in different language. He was addressing the darkness of the people of Israel. If you will read the first eight chapters of the book of Joshua, they are doom and gloom. I'm telling you, it is rough. Isaiah has a vision of the glory of God. That's the high point. But the condition of Israel was very difficult. And in addressing the darkness of the people, God says this in chapter 8, verse 19. When men tell you, to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter. The King James says, who peep and mutter. There's sounds that these, that these guys used, these sorcerers used in those days. So when you're told to do that, he says, Should not a people inquire of their God? Why would you consult the dead on behalf of the living? Now catch these words. To the law and to the Testimony. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, that is, according to, to the law and to the testimony, if we can't say that, then they have no light of the dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. Think about your country today. They will roam through the land. When they're famished, they'll become enraged. And looking up, they will curse their king and their God. And then they will look to the earth. The planet. And they will see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. But here again, the law and the prophets are used in tandem. He says, the cheer we need to hear in Israel are for people to rise up and say, to the law and to the prophets, let's have the standards and let's have the stories. We need both. Now here again, it's it's in tandem. We need our stories, but they need to be anchored in standards. The psalmist speaks to this in Psalm 78. It says in verse 5, He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children and they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, the stories, but would keep his commands, the principles, the statutes. Each generation needs to ask, what is our standard? What is our rule of faith going to be? And we must be sure That we pass on a standard to the generations that follow us. I was reading a book called Jesus Pure and Simple. The author's name is Wayne Cordero. When he was in junior high school, his father was freshly retired from a military career. And he bought a, a rugged piece of land along the Rogue River in Oregon. And he set out to tame that land. And one of the projects that he had, and he had his son helping him with, was to build a fence around the area of the house and garden, to delineate that, to keep some of the animals out, and so on. And so while his father was busy setting the fence posts around that area and hammering the slats, young Wayne was responsible to cut four-inch spacers out of eight-foot two-by-fours. And his father instructed him very clearly. He said, measure the first four-inch section, and cut it. And after you cut one piece, you will save time by using that cut piece, that four-inch piece, to measure the others. And he said, I need 200 of them. And he walked away and was busy doing his uh, post setting and putting the rails in. And he was coming back and forth and getting the, the spacers. And that sounded simple enough to Wayne. So he cut an accurate first piece and he laid it on the 2 by 4 and made a pencil line for the next cut. But then he took the original 4-inch piece and he chucked it aside and he used the new 4-inch piece to mark the next one. And after doing that for a couple of hours, before long, his dad was coming and gathering pieces from the pile and they noticed, his dad started yelling at him because he started to notice the gap between the boards on the fence was growing. And they had to tear a lot of it out again. The pile of spacers that he had been cutting for his dad slowly grew from 4 inches to 4 and a quarter inches to four and a half inches to 4 and 3 quarter inches until his dad finally realized what he was doing. Because he didn't use the original 4 inch piece to measure every one from, every time he cut The pieces grew the width of a pencil line. And eventually that deviation, that slight deviation showed up in a visibly crooked fence. You must always measure to the original cut. You have to always go back to the original standards of the Word of God. I don't care what modern theologies are floating around. They'll be expressed differently differently by different generations, but you got to stay with the book. you got to stay with the standards. You always go back to the original. Every generation must be reminded of the original standards and be encouraged to stay with them. The history of Israel, and our own history, shows our tendency to change the standard of measurement. And when we do that, generation after generation, we get so far from the original design. I mean, what do you think happened to the the biblical basis of the founding of the United States by our early fathers? I mean, how did we get from the language of our founding fathers in our constitution? How did we get to become a people who despise The law of God even being mentioned. Wanting to rub it out of courthouses and and, uh, tear it down everywhere. Well, how did we get there? Well, we keep measuring against the past generation. And that next generation measures against us. And the next one against their former generation. And we keep doing that instead of measuring according to the original standard. The Constitution says we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. And they are endowed by their creator. With certain unalienable rights. Now clearly our founding fathers believed in a creator. Who provides for us basic human rights. But today you can't even talk about a creator. Without people being offended. Somewhere along the line. The generations got away from measuring By the standard of the creator. Instead they measured by the former generation. And slowly the line has moved until we're in the mess that we're in today. I read an article last week that endeavored to answer the question. This is going to sound off the subject, but it's not. Why people die for their pets. And I was curious because a guy died trying to save his dog out in California. That had fallen partially on a cliff. And the man fell to his death and it was sad but it was discussing the whole mentality of why people will risk and sometimes lose their lives in an order to save their pet and it especially concerns me when it's cats you know what I mean <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> I have a reputation in case you haven't noticed uh, yeah. um, the article was interesting because they cited evolution as a possible reason why we are so close to our pets. <laughs> it's unbelievable. The assumption of the founding fathers that, is that there was a creator. The assumption today is that there is not. Instead, some amoeba crawled out from under a rock, and here we are today, complex, living human beings. <laughs> but the article told me something that I didn't know, and I bet you didn't know it. This is what scientists are concluding now. They think that the giant mastodons, you know these big hairy woolly mammoth uh, creatures. They think that the giant mastodons went extinct because of a partnership between dogs and humans as they evolved. A partnership. They say that the dogs and the humans got their heads together and hunted the woolly mammoth to extinction. Imagine that. He's cracking me up. Hey, Fido, you scare that mastodon my direction. I'm going to climb the tree and drop a rock on his head. And then the plot fails and he climbs down from the tree in anger and says, Fido, you are the stupidest human being I ever met. Can't you do anything right? I mean, this is how far we've become. And we got here because the scripture was forsaken as the standard of measurement for our lives. Generation after generation, we have moved further from the original design. We need memorials. We need a standard of measurement. And we need it now. And the place to begin is in the generations coming together and working together to restore the standard. I close this message with a passage that boils down all these points into one heart connection that has to take place. The prophet Malachi lived in a very, very difficult day. And while some of the prophets like Haggai and Zechariah reproved the people for their delay for rebuilding the temple and they were building their own homes and so on, Malachi prophesied after the temple had been rebuilt, after the captivity. And it was up and running. And he confronted their neglect of the standards that had been set in the law and the prophets. A very interesting read. His was the last prophetic voice before prophetic voices went silent for 400 years in that what we call the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments. His was the last voice. But he prophesied that Messiah was indeed coming. And I want to look, point you to the last chapter of the book. In Malachi chapter 4, Verses 1-6, through he says, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. He's talking about the destruction that was to come to Jerusalem. And all of the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. What did John the Baptist preach? The axe is being laid to the root of the tree. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you... Who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go out and leap like a calf freed from the stall. Do you ever see a calf with this gangly leg just leaping and dancing? And then you will trample down the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. This is what he'll do. Catch this. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. And if he doesn't, I will come and strike the land. With a curse. Elijah was a prophetic voice who called Israel back to God in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. His was a voice for the covenant, a voice for the law and for the prophets. And Jesus interpreted this for us in Matthew 17. He told us that Elijah, that the Elijah that Malachi spoke of, was John the Baptist. There's no question about who that coming Elijah was. It was John the Baptist. And John would do the one thing in his ministry that would keep the earth from being cursed. He would be the instrument of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. This is the synergy of generations. Generations having a heart for one another, working together. together, And this voice echoes Every time there is a renewal in church history, we must have a restoration among the generations to prevent a curse on the land. And may it begin with us today. Let's pray. Father, help us to live these messages, to take seriously the synergy of the generations, the responsibility to pass the faith along, the responsibility to build memorials and reestablish the standard of your word, that every generation that follows us would measure by that standard and not by our faults and failures. Help us, Father.